I hate to interrupt all this scintillating conversation, but we do have to begin. And let's begin by praying this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your gifts and everything we receive is a gift from you. All good things. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the greatest gift of all. And we thank you, Father, that in your plan and in your will, when we were dead and lost in our trespasses and sins, you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, in the flesh. And he died for our sins and you raised him from the dead on the third day so that whoever simply believes in Jesus Christ as their savior will never perish, but has eternal life now and forever. Father, this morning, we ask for your guidance and direction through the Holy Spirit as we continue in the Gospel of John, learning and, and marveling at the, the works and words of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I'd also like to pray this morning for the family of Marilee Goodwin, um, in particular, John Monica Miller and Marilee's husband. She passed away last early this morning and is now home with the Lord, with you, Father. And we just uh, also want to pray for the needs of the saints generally, Father. We pray for the needs, particularly, particularly of the saints that are being persecuted right now and for all of us and our needs and our difficulties. We give them all to you. And it's in Jesus name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Morning again, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday service. Just a couple of things this morning. Um, Once again, I'm going to keep emphasizing the importance of prayer, the power of prayer. Um, Just to have an opportunity, take opportunity. You know, we're pray at all times which actually in and of itself is a great gift. What it means is that we have the Holy Spirit indwelling our hearts and therefore is any time of the day and night, we can we can pray powerfully, even if we don't feel powerful, even if we don't feel like we have our act together, it doesn't matter because the Holy Spirit prays for us. So the very decision to pray is powerful, all right? But it is important too to be particular Pray for particular people in particular situations um, whenever we can. Sometimes we just have to pray generally for somebody, but it, it is also very good to be specific in your prayer. One of the reasons is, is that the um, impact of answered prayer is greater for us, not for God, but for how we how we see the power of God when we've asked for something specific, and it specifically has come to pass. So encourage everybody to continue um, in prayer. Um, next Sunday, uh, May 29th, we will be taking a break, or at least the congregation will be taking a break. <laughs> um, anyway, there'll be no service on that date. Um, the following Sunday, June 5th, is the first Sunday of June, and so we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper at that time. All right, so next Sunday, we're not going to have a service. Sunday after that, first Sunday of June, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of that service. With that, I'd like you to please turn this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. And this morning we're going to begin in verse 22. John, chapter 10, verse 22. Title of this morning's message, Words of the Lord Jesus Christ, No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. He's talking about his sheep. This morning, we're going to get specific about who his sheep are and who his sheep aren't. This, by the way, is an incredible promise of what we call eternal security. And we'll see more of that in just a moment. Okay, at this time, let's read our, I will read the passage. John chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. By the way, briefly, I want to point out something, and that is I want you to notice the specifics, okay, the detail here. It's a person who witnessed these things. Could he be the one that would be able to tell us when when these things happened, where Jesus was, what he was doing, specifically where in the temple? It, It all has the markings of authentic first-hand witness. Of course, John the Apostle was that, okay? Particularly in in, in Jerusalem, because he had somehow or other, he had relationship, connection with the the chief priest that year, the high priest that year, when Jesus died. Again, verse 22. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon, The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? 
If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Our passage this morning contains one of the strongest statements in the entire Bible concerning the believer's eternal security. What is eternal security? What does that two-word expression, eternal security, mean? This is what it means. It means that whoever believes in Christ is saved forever. Whoever believes in Christ is saved forever. He has passed from death to life. And there will be no passing back from life to death. Okay, he's passed from death to life. He or she is a new creation. That person has eternal life and can never lose it. That's what we mean by eternal security. You, you believe in Christ, you're saved forever. Okay, no matter what you do after that, all right, you are saved. Your eternal salvation is secure. You have eternal life. It's never going to be taken from you. And, and uh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself guarantees that as well as God the Father, as well as God the Holy Spirit. Eternal security. Or as Jesus puts it in verse 28. Look at verse 28. Chapter 10, verse 28. This is a great definition in and of itself of what this eternal security means. John 10, 28. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I can think of no greater comfort than the picture that Jesus paints here in verse 28. Eternal life is a gift. Okay, We didn't do anything to earn or deserve it. God freely gave us eternal life on the basis of faith in Christ as our Savior. It's a gift. They'll never be taken away. The people who receive the gift of eternal life will never perish. Now, of course... We die physically, okay, unless you're going to be a member of the rapture generation, which we may be, you're going to die physically. But you will never die spiritually. You will never be separated ever, ever again from God, from the Lord Jesus Christ. You are in fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and you'll never lose it. Okay, never. You have passed from death to life. You are in Adam. And now you're in Christ forever, forever. You're in brand new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. All that's, all that's authentically you now was given as a gift. God provided that. God made you who you are. And just like Jesus Christ is the last Adam, there's no other kind of man after Jesus Christ and those who are members of his body. That's it. What does that mean? Is There's no moving back. And there's nothing else that you can fall into in the future. You believe in Christ. You save forever. You have eternal life. You can never lose it. Or again in verse 28, and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, remember, Jesus Christ in this chapter is presenting himself with the figure of what? The good shepherd. And he says, those who are just the hired hands, when the wolf comes, they run away and the wolf can go and snatch, right? Snatch the sheep. Jesus is saying, when I am in the picture and they're my sheep, no one will ever snatch them out of my hand, ever. That's eternal security. That's that comfort that we have. All right, let's go back now and let's look at our passage from start to finish. We're going to begin with the setting, all right? John sets the stage, as it were, in verses 22 and 23. So let's take a look at that right now. Verse 22. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. 
if this were a play, the narrator would tell you that. You'd see it. You would see that there's Jesus walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. It would be the time of year. It would be cold out. It was winter. This is all the setting where and when this takes place. The time was winter. The time was the Feast of Dedication. All right. Now, the Feast of Dedication occurred in December. December. Now, the, the, the feast that we were seeing formally, all right, back in Chapter 7, as a matter of fact, the feast and the, and the aftermath um, from Chapter 7 through the end of Chapter 9 and part of Chapter 10 is all in and around uh, the Feast of uh, Tabernacles. Okay, in and around because it probably extended a little bit more, but that was in late September, early October. Now we are in December. The following April, Jesus Christ will die on the cross. So it's getting close. Jesus had a three, three and a half year public ministry. We are now about three and a half months away in terms of with this event that occurred, the Feast of the Dedication that occurred in December. And again, in three and a half months from then, Jesus Christ would be crucified. The place setting here, the temple in Jerusalem. We've seen that Jesus taught there on several occasions. All the way back, by the way, to when he was 12 years old. That's not in this gospel, but it's a fact. And, and including, he taught, remember, during the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, he stood up on the great day, the last day of the feast. And he proclaimed that I, you know, that he said that um, I, I am... I am, he said, <laughs> anyway, what is it? Is that it? Hold on. Why well, guess? John chapter 7, verse 25. All right, 20, verse 28. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. And that is not what I wanted to show you. Where is it? 38. Yes, that's it. Verse 37 and 38. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He had said that, as we can see in the temple, at the last day, the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now we have the Feast of the Dedication. It's in December. The Feast of the Dedication commemorated a great victory that the Jews had in 164 B.C., or approximately 200 years earlier. There's a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus. You've heard of the Maccabees? Well, he was one. He was a leader. And uh, he had defeated the forces of a madman. It was a Syrian Greek by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He was a wicked, wicked man. He, he hated the Jews. He killed tens of thousands of them. He went into the temple and desecrated. He actually put a pig on the altar in the Holy of Holies and sacrificed it. Now, if you know anything about the Jewish people and their, and their laws of, of food, you know that, that the, the, the swine, the flesh of a swine, was absolutely prohibited. It was a desecration of, to, the, to the nth degree of everything that the temple stood for. But then he was defeated by the forces of Judas Maccabeus. And then at that point, the temple was cleansed. It was rededicated. And, it, and again, it's after it had been defiled by the Syrians, it was rededicated. That's why this is called the Feast of the Dedication. Today, by the way, this feast goes by the name of Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights in December. It's celebrating the same event, just has a different name. Okay, look at John chapter 10, verse 24. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, I want you to get the picture. He's walking in the temple. All of a sudden, a crowd of Jewish leaders. Remember, the Jews, most of the time, <coughs> when John uses that title, he's talking about the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, chief priests. 
they gathered around him. In other words, they mobbed him. Right. They wouldn't let him escape. They're like, no, you're going to tell us right now. We want to hear it from your own lips. OK, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, this is incredibly ironic. You know, the fact is that Jesus had already shown them again and again and again who he really was. Um, I, I pointed out to you along the way all the times when what he did, say a miracle, pointed out that he was the son of God pointed out that he was the Messiah. His very words, he spoke of the fact of his relationship with the Father and why he came. His very imagery that we've seen here in chapter 10 of the Good Shepherd. Remember, we saw that coming out of the Old Testament. It was speaking of the time in the future when God would give a shepherd in the line of David and that shepherd would guide the flock. So again and again and again, he referred, he referenced the fact that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. He had shown them again and again who he really was. In fact, the entire gospel of John is centered around the identity of Jesus. Jesus as the Christ, the son of God, by believing you'll have life in his name. Jesus revealed his identity by his deeds as well as by his words. Going forward from here, he is going to really emphasize his deeds. In particular, those seven signs, right? The seven miracles that John records Now, we've already seen six of them. And as they progress, they get more and more amazing. I mean, we just saw something that had never been done before, that Jesus opened the eyes of a blind man. In chapter 11, the next chapter, we're going to see the seventh, the last one. And that is when Jesus Christ raised Lazarus from the dead after he'd been dead four years. People saw that. This is all building, all right? If you think about the Gospel of John and you look at what's going on, what you have is Jesus incrementally presenting in more powerful ways who he is, the Son of God and the Christ, the Messiah, through his words and then increasingly through his deeds. See, it's time is getting short. He never gives up on even the Jews, the leaders. All right. And, and to a large extent, the, the more these as, as the miracles get more and more amazing. All right. It's done for the purpose of saying, look, what do I have to do? Does all that you I get your attention? Trust me. In the end, that the fact that it gets more and more amazing will serve to indict all of those who always refuse to believe in him. And going forward, he's going to point to his works. He's saying, I know you don't want to listen to me. No matter what I say about who I am and who my father is and why I'm here, you're tuning me out completely. But you can't ignore the works that I have done. And those speak and testify of, of who I am also. He revealed his identity by his deeds as well as by his works. I mean, his words. Think about it. Back in chapter 5, he had cured a man who was lame for 38 years. Miraculous. He, as we saw in chapter 9, he gave sight to the blind man. Soon he will give life to a dead man. I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5. Isaiah 35, verse 5. You know, one time when Jesus was with another man who was paralyzed, he told that man, your sins have been forgiven. And the the Pharisees and the leaders were saying, who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. So Jesus then said, what is it easier to do to say your sins are forgiven or to tell this man who is lame to get up, take your pal and walk? He says, so that you may know that I have the power to forgive sins, get up and walk. And the man got up and he walked away. You see, for those who refuse to to take Jesus at his word, he's, he's basically saying, look, I can say these things. But when I do these things, you can't possibly ignore that unless you're really hardened of heart. Not only that, but the deed spoke very powerfully of who he was. An unprecedented miracle, opening the eyes of a blind. But that wasn't the first time this was ever documented. In the prophet Isaiah, all right, which I'd like you to turn to if you haven't already, Isaiah 35, starting in verse 5, speaks of the the deeds that will be performed when the Messiah arrives. Okay, So, so the fact 
Think about it. The fact that Jesus did the deeds that Isaiah said the Messiah would perform and that these deeds are unprecedented proves that he is the Christ. Does that make sense? Anybody with eyes to see and ears to hear who knew anything about the prophet Isaiah would have would have understood that. Only if they didn't have eyes to see or ears to hear could they ignore that. Look at Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5. Then when the Messiah comes, when the kingdom is upon us, then the eyes of the blind will be opened. Right? The man born blind, eyes open. Then the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Notice verse 6. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. And now you see two of the miracles that Jesus performed, Isaiah predicted would be performed by the Messiah. Okay? Not only that, but his words, even in this chapter, when he calls himself the good shepherd, and earlier on when he called himself the son of man, you see, those were designations of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And so there's two things really going on. There's the miracles that speak directly. And there's the words that come out of the Old Testament. And so he's basically given them two opportunities here. All right. One, of course, would require somebody to have some knowledge of the Old Testament. But surely the, the chief priests, the Pharisees, they if anybody should know the Old Testament, they would. So they have no excuse in that department. And then the very works, the, the, how amazing they are, the fact that they could only come from the hand of God, also given to them as a gift so that they would believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. But, you know, even the very actions of the Jews, the leaders, the religious leaders, proved that they knew at least who he claimed to be. If, and, of course, he claimed to be who he really was. I mean, think of it. Why would the Jews try to stone him? Remember, he's, he's, they already tried to stone him at least a couple of times, right? Why did they do that? If not because they thought he was claiming to be God. And, and of course, he was. Before Abraham was, I am. Again, the, the personal title of the Lord in the Old Testament. He said, I am. He's declaring himself to be God. They knew that. They knew what he meant by that. Why also would they say anyone who confessed him as the Christ would be put out of the synagogue? Why would they go to that step? Because he was the Christ, and anybody with eyes to see and ears to hear recognized that. And so they, even their very actions betrayed the fact that they knew he was, he was the Christ and the Son of God, or at least they knew that he had declared that through his words and his deeds. So in other words, there's no, there's no reason for them to ask that question. There wasn't a curiosity at that point. They didn't mob him here in the temple because they were still curious. Could it be? Is it possible? They knew. Okay, so why did they ask him the question? Well, it's really simple. Once again, they were setting a trap for him. They'd already done this several times. I mean, in chapter 8, we saw how the woman caught in adultery. They took that woman and in the very act, apparently, and put, him, put her at the feet of Jesus and said, listen, the law says we should stone such a woman. What do you say? Right? It was a trap. Okay, so they were they were very good about that. I mean, they 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 were consistent about that. Now this time they hoped that he would say something that would trip him up, that they could then take the words that he said and use it against him. They were looking for any pretext so they could have him arrested and put to death. This was an example of that. Now, of course, if you're legalistic, one could say, well, you know, technically. Jesus hadn't said those exact words, I am the Messiah. See, that's how legalists work, right? You can show them miracles from the Old Testament. You can say that all the designations of who you are. And yet they'll say, well, you know, technically, I haven't really said, come right out and said. Well, there's a good reason, by the way, why he didn't come out and say that in public. Okay, the main reason was is because, because the people at that time had a false idea, remember, who the Messiah was. If he had used that title for himself, it would, it would To them, it wouldn't mean that he was the promised Messiah who would be the king and die for the sins of the world and all the things that Isaiah, among others, talked about, the promised one. It would be, here's a political military leader who can, who, who can defeat the Jews. Now you think about it. At this time in the Feast of the Dedication, right, they, may be, they may have been thinking back, there'll be another one like Judas Maccabeus who will now come, but he will be the greatest one. 
and he will militarily defeat the Romans. Jesus knew that wasn't who he was. He knew that that his kingdom at this point was not of this world. And so he knew that he would be creating uh, a, a huge distraction if he said publicly, I am the Messiah. I mean, after he had done the miracle of turning um, five loaves and two fish into enough food to feed thousands, they wanted to make him king then, remember? And he had to run and hide himself. And so he wasn't going to do this in public. But he certainly told individuals in private. For example, all right, remember in chapter four, the Samaritan woman at the well. At a certain point in time, she said, well, you know, when the Messiah comes, he's going to make this all clear. And then Jesus said to her, he who was standing before you is he. So he did say to certain people that he was the Messiah. And, of course, he just said it back in chapter 9, verse 37. He said to the blind man when he, when he, when he came and the formerly blind man was sitting by the side of him and thrown out by the Pharisees, the Jews, and Jesus came across him. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And then the formerly blind man says, tell me who he is, that I may believe in him. And then Jesus said the same thing. You are looking at him. And then he worshipped him. So Jesus did tell individuals in private that he was the Messiah. He had this pattern. Even after he was raised from the dead, he continued. When he wanted people to see that he was risen from the dead, he chose particular people to do that. Now, yes, there was a point at which 500 people saw him at one time. But those were all disciples. Okay, he didn't he didn't go like the apostles later would. Um, into the temple and, and show everybody, here I am. He was, he was dealing with people on a one-to-one basis, like on the road to Emmaus. We can, we can speculate why that was, but it's a fact. That's, Jesus, that's how Jesus handled revealing who he was, revealing that he had been raised from the dead. We saw already in the first chapter, I don't know if you remember, but Andrew, the first time he met Jesus, knew that he was the promised Messiah. The demons knew who he was. So there was all kinds of evidence, clearly, that he was the Messiah and the Son of God. Look at chapter 10, verse 25 now. John chapter 10, verse 25. Let's go back there to our passage this morning. They said, hey, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Say it right out in front of everybody here right now. What did he say? Jesus answered them, verse 25. I told you. I already told you. And you do not believe. So in other words, the issue wasn't that they didn't have the information. The issue was that they refused to believe what their eyes told them, what their ears told them. They refused to believe. And then he goes on and he points specifically now to the miracles. The works that I do in my father's name, these testify of me. There have been many people along the way who, by merely hearing him teach, speaking his words, believed in him. Okay, he didn't tell those people. Now you have to look at my deeds before you can believe in me. Right. He first led with the words. Right. Same thing with us. Right. How, How do we how are we saved? Well, we're not saved by some miraculous event that happens in our personal lives. How we say by hearing the truth of the gospel and believing it. Okay, that is the preferred way to bring somebody to faith in Christ. And so that when when Jesus came across people, for example, all the Samaritans from the town of Sychar who came and said, come back with us for three days. He didn't perform any miracles. He told them who he was and taught them. And they all believed at the end. They said, you are the savior of the world through words, not through miracles. But now he's dealing with the hardest of the hard-hearted, the ones who refuse to believe. And now he says, listen, you, you, I get it. You, you, don't, you don't listen to my words. You don't believe what I have to say. They are the words of God, but you won't hear them. So here you go. Right, here's, a, here's an even more amazing miracle. Okay? And, of course, again, in chapter 11, the most amazing one of all. But, again, he's increasingly going to point to his deeds, and that's because of the audience of the Jews, the leaders, religious leaders who were the most hard-hearted of all. Again, verse 25, Jesus answered, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. They testified that he was the Messiah, 
and the Son of God. He points to his Father. He says, I do them in my Father's name. They knew who he meant. That he had already told them. He says, listen, the, the God that you worship is my Father. Your problem was what? Well, you don't, you don't actually worship the true God. You are of your Father the devil. He didn't mince any words about that. But he always pointed to the Father. He said, I'm doing the works of my Father. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He shows me first, and then I do them. In other words, he pointed to the authority of God over and over again to perform his miracles. So it was so obvious to anyone who was paying attention that these miracles, his deeds, were miracles that only God could perform. The unprecedented miracle of taking a man who was blind from birth and, and then giving him eyes to see could only have been performed by God. And they knew that. They knew that. And again, in chapter 11, when he's raising Lazarus from the dead after Lazarus had been dead for four days, clearly only God could perform that. The lame walk, the blind see, the dead come to life. Clearly, Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. What was the problem? Well, there's a problem that Isaiah pointed to in chapter 6 of the Jews of his day. Their problem was that their hearts were insensitive and their eyes were dim. At this point, they're really insensitive and really dim. But the light hasn't gone out completely. And we know that because Jesus will continue to offer them the opportunity to believe in him. So there must have been some chance, however minute, that their eyes would finally see, that their hearts would soften, they would understand this is the promised Messiah. Every miracle, however, that Jesus performed, each one more amazing than the one previous, only served ultimately to harden their hearts even more. They're just like Pharaoh in the Old Testament. The same thing, exactly the same thing. The Lord gave Moses the power to perform miracles, all right, plagues. And they got worse and worse and worse and worse. And all that did was to harden Pharaoh's heart more and more and more and more. You see, if people make the decision that they simply don't want to believe the things that God is doing in their lives, or they don't want to believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, they refuse to believe that. If they refuse, like Pharaoh, to believe that there is one God, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it doesn't matter what evidence they receive. In fact, it's going to turn their heart tighter and tighter and tighter against considering these truths, okay? That's the nature of things. You know, when Jesus says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me, he is, of course, talking about believers in Christ. As time goes on, the believers, the sheep, fall more and more in love with him, get to know him better and better and better, and hear again and again about all the blessings that, that are given to them on account of the fact of who their owner is, the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, you have this remarkable dig, dig, you know, dig, digression. The, 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 the distinction gets bigger and bigger and bigger between the sheep and those who are not his sheep. Or as he'll say at the end, um, before, before he goes to the cross, talking about the Gentile nations, the sheep and the goats. Okay, so that's that is that is the tragedy of what we're seeing unfold before us here in the Gospel of John. Look at verse 26, John 10, 26. He said, listen, I told you, you don't believe that's the problem. The issue isn't that you haven't got enough evidence. Okay, the works that I do are amazing. Clearly, they're from God. He said, that's not the problem. What? You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Now, here in verse 26, he returns to that figure of who he is, the good shepherd. He's talking once again about the shepherd and his sheep. Only now he's telling people that are not his sheep. You see, see that, that when, when he says my sheep, and he's talking about a particular group, then almost by definition, there are those who are not his sheep. And it's just as important to see what he has to say about those who are not his sheep 
as it is to understand who his sheep are. As a matter of fact, you can um, you can you can define who his sheep are by what he says to those who are not his sheep. In other words, we see that they're the opposite of that. Just like Jesus was the opposite of anything said about the, the hired man. Same thing here. The sheep are the opposite of the things that Jesus is going to talk and say concerning the ones who are not his sheep. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Now, I don't let's not get caught in a trap ourselves. You know, so often we are looking at we want to look at our Western point of view, our scientific point of view, cause and effect. Right. That's not how John saw things. Right. He saw things in terms of relationship, equality. Okay, he is saying basically the ones who don't believe are equal, the ones who are not in my sheep. He's not talking about cause and effect. He's not saying that not being of my sheep causes you not to believe. Okay. He's saying those are the same people. Okay. If you want to know who's not my sheep, it's the people who do not believe. Now, earlier again, he had talked about his relationship with his sheep. They hear my voice. I know them and they know me and I follow them. Right. And I give them life, life abundant. This time he's talking about those who are not of his sheep. Now, who were they? Well, he's talked about them before. Remember, he's talked about those who are of this world rather than of heaven. He said, there are those who are born of the flesh, he told Nicodemus, but they're not born of the spirit. You see, those are opposites, right? My sheep born of the spirit, not my sheep born of the flesh. He said to them, they were from below. He said, Jesus, I am from above. You are from below. All right. Unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. We'll see that passage in a moment. Look at John chapter three, verse six, when he spoke to Nicodemus at night. John chapter three, verse six. Really clear, right? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Okay, in Adam, not born again. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Those are opposites. Okay, there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who are fleshly and those who are spiritual. Those who are unbelievers, not of Lord's sheep. Those who are believers of the Lord's sheep. This is really straightforward. The simplicity of the image of the shepherd and the sheep is on purpose to say this is simple. Okay, this is not an issue of not understanding. This is not an issue of not having enough evidence. It's an issue of fact about who you have made up your mind to be. All right. Or not to be. That is the question. One or the other. All right. Look at John chapter eight, verse twenty three. Once again, he's talking to Jewish unbelievers. Notice the terms that he uses. He's talking about those who are not his sheep. John 8, 23. He was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Can you see how black and white this is? Right. Jesus spoke with authority. He said it like it was. The word of God is powerful, separating, right? Separating the soul from the spirit. And that's what the word of God does. It makes things clear and it separates. We've already seen how when Jesus would say something, it would cause a division. First in the crowd, then even among the Jewish leadership. There was division based on his words, the words that he spoke. Why? Because they're piercing words. You can't escape the the, the implication of what he's saying. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Okay. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. And then the issue, the simplicity of it. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. He told them again and again about the difference between those who were his sheep and those who weren't his sheep. And he's facing people now that are getting hotter and hotter in their opposition to him and their refusal to believe. Remember, when 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 the man who was formerly blind told him outright 
uh, that Jesus had healed him, and this is implications that he was a prophet and a great man. They, did, they, they were so angry that they threw the guy out. What does that mean? We don't want to hear testimony. We don't want anybody to tell us any more about what we know to be true, but we refuse to believe. Okay. And yet, despite this, despite their persistent and growing unbelief, Jesus doesn't give up on them. Okay. As a matter of fact, even after this, he will continue to invite them. These are the hard-hearted ones, the ones whose eyes are growing more and more dim. He's going to invite them to, to believe in him, even now, even after they've shown in so many ways that they're refusing to believe. He will, he will invite them again, believe in me, and join my flock. That's the heartbeat of God. God is not willing that any should perish. All right, let's look at John chapter seven, 10, rather, verse 37. Let's hop over above today's passage into verses 37 and 38 of John chapter 10. This is after, in, chapter, in verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. All right, that's pretty clear, right? And then what do they want to do? They want to do the same thing again. Anytime he talked about himself being God, they wanted to stone him because they thought it was blasphemy. But even after that, notice verse 37. He points to his works, right? If I do not do the works of my father, don't believe me. Hmm. I mean, that's really, that's really, you know, putting it on the line, right? If you don't, if my works are not from God, you shouldn't believe me. But if I do them, if I am performing the works of God, the works of my father, even though you don't believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Why? He's giving him another opportunity to believe in him as God's only begotten son. He doesn't give up on them. All right, back in, in, in verse 27 now. Just back up to verse 27 as we continue in our passage this morning. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus, of course, had already painted a picture at the beginning of chapter 10 about the sheep and the shepherd and the door and the wolves and the thieves and the robbers and so forth. Now what he's doing is he's now going to complete it and say, that was the picture, here's the reality. But let's go back once again and refresh our memories about the pictures that he painted. Let's go back to John chapter 10, verse 3. We're just going to go back and, and see how he had done this, how he had, first of all, given them the picture that all can understand, and then he fills it out and, and, and shifts. Here's the reality. It's, I'm going to say it in terms of the figures I have drawn, but this is the reality I want you to understand. Look at chapter 10, verse 3. To him, the shepherd, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. And he leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. So that, that picture was, was, was clear. It was something that everybody could relate to. So that in verse 27, now he, he makes it real, and he says, I'm the, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep who are believers know, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, eternal life. He had talked about giving life, that the shepherd gives life in that abundant. Now he's saying, I am the one, and I give eternal life to them. They'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Look at verse 14. Once again, he talks about this fact that he knows his own, his own know him. This is the picture still. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Okay, let's go back to John chapter. Um, oops, let's go back to John chapter ten, verse twenty-seven. Yes, I didn't put that in there. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Verse twenty-eight. I give eternal life to them; they will never perish, 
no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's the security. But he had sent something earlier to set this up. It's in John 10.10. Verse 28 harkens back to John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And he's he's revealing in, in verse 28 what kind of life that is. It's eternal life. And they can never lose it. In other words, he's taking what he's already laid out and he's bringing it to its ultimate reality, its ultimate conclusion. The life that the shepherd came to give his sheep is eternal life. Go back to chapter 10, verse 27. We'll continue. Go forward to that. He's just told the the leaders that they're not his sheep. Now he's going back to those who are his sheep. My sheep hear my voice. You see, it was just the words that were enough for his sheep. I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Who here wants to be the sheep that are of his flock? Well, I do. (laughs) Right? Of course. But then the question is, and they see, I want you to think about it from the point of view of his audience. Okay, they're still they're still like they're kind of brain dead and they don't they still don't understand what he's talking about. So in verse 28, he lays it right out. Who are the sheep of the Lord who receives eternal life from the good shepherd? Those are the questions. Who are these sheep who receives eternal life from the good shepherd? Well, I want to go back to one passage that we've already seen, and that's in chapter six. Verse 37 through 40. Go back to John chapter 6, verses 37 to 40. This is back when Jesus was speaking to the Jews in Capernaum. He had said some things that would have, that shocked them even back then. He said, he who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood will never die. And then he says this in verse 37. Very, very similar, strikingly similar to what he's now saying in chapter 10. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Can you see how similar that is to what he's saying in chapter 10? That no one will snatch them out of my hand. The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, the Father. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. That's what? Eternal security. All right? All the sheep that the Father has given them, he's not going to lose any of them. In fact, on the last day, he's going to raise them up. Right? That's going to be the, the, the statement of eternal security. For believers in Christ in the church age, that's the rapture. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. The sheep that the Father gives the Son are the ones who behold the Son and believe. They equal. All right? Don't, again, there are times when we just have to accept what's laid in front of us. Don't do the cause and effect here. Just say, I get it. All right? Those who behold and believe the Son, those are the sheep that the Father gives the Son. The, the ones that the Father gives the Son, all right, those are the ones who behold the Son and believe in Him. They're one and the same. And of course, this is the consistent message of the Gospel of John. Jesus equates those whom the Father gives Him with those who believe in Him. Okay, He equates the two. Again, this is the message over and over again in the Gospel of John. For example, let's just look at a few of them. Let's go back. Look at John chapter 3, verse 16. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I know my sheep and my sheep know me and I give eternal life to my sheep and they will never perish. Same thing. Look at John 5, 24. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. If you have heard the gospel and believed it, this is talking about you. Okay. He, whoever does that has eternal life and does not come into judgment. This is, of course, really similar to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, right? There's no condemnation, right, for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the same principle. You, if you're a believer in Christ, are never going to come into judgment, ever. Now, we know why, because Jesus has paid, has died for all of our sins. We've been forgiven of all of our sins. We've been declared righteous by God the Father. We have eternal life. We are in Christ forever. We're not going to come into judgment. As a matter of fact, you, if you're a believer in Christ, have already passed out of death into life, into the perfect, greatest life of all, the very life of God, eternal life. Look at John 6, 47. Once again, Jesus is not afraid of repeating. Truly, truly, I, truly, truly, I say to you, he who has repented of all his sins and have called me Lord, Lord, and have promised, and has, has promised they're never going to sin again, and is tithing right now, has eternal life. Is that what it says? No. Is that what a lot of churches tell people today? Absolutely. Do a lot of churches tell people, well, you know, God gave you this, but you can still do something yourself that can mess this all up. Right? Right. So is that what Jesus says, though? No. See, it's clear. It's simple. But you know why? Because as soon as you bring into the picture something that's under our control, the whole thing falls apart. I mean, we, you know, nothing good dwells in our flesh. Right? It all falls apart. Even if, you know, we do it in our mind. We say to ourselves, well, you know, I'm having a bad day or I did this or I did that morning and therefore i if, if it's up to me i know i'm going to blow it at some point you know I, I i came from the perspective of roman catholicism as as many of you know i'm probably tired of hearing it but when i started thinking logically about the teachings of the catholic church which are really hey you know what you're baptized as a baby you're in but you can do all kinds of things to get out right you commit what's called a mortal sin you're going to go to hell. If you commit a ve- enough venial sins, they call them, that's kind of like second tier, right? you're going to have to spend some time in this place called purgatory, and you're going to have to suffer and go through all of these things, right? <laughs> so I was thinking one day, this is terrible, I probably shouldn't say it, but I'm going to say it. I was thinking one day, you know what, if that's really true, okay, what, I'm, what I really should do, I'm not going to do it, but what I really should do is I could go, should go find a bishop, confess all my sins, they might be mortal, so I want to get them off my chest, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill myself. I say, that's shocking. No, that, that is the conclusion that you have to come to, right? If I could do something tomorrow that could forfeit my eternal destiny, right? Well, I, I don't want that. I don't want, so, it's, so you say that. Well, then therefore, that's got to be a lie, right? I mean, is that, can you see that? How that if, 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 if it's really true that God says, I'm going to give you something, but if you can mess this up, I'm going to take it back, Okay. Then, then you might as well not go forward at all because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We continue to, right? Nothing good dwells in our flesh. So this, either this has to be true. Either this is true or we don't have a God who loves us, who is all forgiving, who is righteous and just, who has given us his own son as our substitute. Okay, None of that can be true if we can lose our eternal salvation. My sheep... Hear my voice. Let's go back now. John chapter 10, verse 27, and we'll close. John chapter 10, verse 27. I should give, I should give you a signal. Anytime I'm going to say something that little, little ears may not be ready to hear. Right? Then you can, you can like say, draw this right now and get really, get really into it right now. Anyway, John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. 
and no one will ever, ever, ever snatch them out of my hand. And, it, and, and as if that's not enough, my father, God, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of his father's, out of the father's hand. And I and the father are one. Verse 30, another statement of the deity of Christ. We'll see that next week. But I want you to notice that we are doubly secure, right? Not only is eternal life a gift, not only do we have a promise never to perish, we have a promise from Jesus that he's going to hold on to us forever. Wherever he is, will be forever and ever. He, he will always be our shepherd. We'll always follow him. But not only that, we get a double security because the Father, God the Father, who is the one who, after all, gave us to Jesus as a gift to him, is greater than all. He, he created the universe. He's all-powerful. What's impossible for any creature is always possible for God. He's greater than all. If God says, no one is ever going to snatch you out of my hand, and he's greater than everything, then that promise has to be true. There can be no greater security than the one who is all-powerful, all-loving, all-righteous, knows everything, can be wherever he wants to be, never changes. For that one to tell you, listen, it's a sure thing. I will never let anything, anybody, any power snatch you out of my hand. And then and Jesus and the Father are totally together on that. Okay. No power in the universe. Never mind the, the, the little puny power that we have. You know, I mean, our flesh has some power. But no power in the universe, the greatest power you could ever imagine, okay, the, the power of, of a million nuclear devices, the power of the strongest fallen angel, no power in the universe can ever break this bond between the good shepherd and the sheep. It's impossible. That's called eternal security, okay? That's, that's the nature of this security that we have. And oh, by the way, the Bible says it about 500 different ways. As a matter of fact, a few years ago, we did a series on eternal security. And I'm going back and I'm taking all the notes and I'm, I'm distilling it into one document that's going to be ready really soon. So you'll be able to have sort of an encyclopedia of all the different ways in which God and his word tells you that as a believer in Christ, you are eternally secure. But you don't really need anything more than what we have this morning, right? I mean, that alone says it so clearly. And these, this is from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says it too, though. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 35, as we close this morning. He's going to take what Jesus said, and he's going to put some specifics around it, put them in certain terms that kind of like spell out in more detail what, what Jesus says succinctly. That, that's a, that is something that happens all the time. Jesus will say something simply and clearly, and then Paul will come and give you the implications of all of that. Okay, so this is an example of that. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Or, or the way that Paul puts it, Romans 8.35. Who will separate us, we're the sheep now, from the love of Christ. Okay, let's list some of the things that people might be concerned about. Will tribulation do it? No. Will distress? I'm feeling very distressed. I'm feeling insecure. I, I, I'm feeling I'm not worthy. Will that do it? No. Persecution? No. Famine? Nakedness? Peril? Sword? No. None of these things will ever separate us from the love of Christ. Just that it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's how the world looks at us, right? They think that there's a way for them to, like the wolf, come and snatch and kill us. But they only live below, right? They're of this world. And that's all they can see. You see, we can see the things that are above, the things that are not of this world. Set your mind on the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of the Father, right? Not the things that are earthly, the things that are heavenly. 
right? Verse 37, here are some heavenly truths. But in all these things, we're going to face a lot of difficulties. We're going to face a lot of challenges. We're going to face some suffering of different kinds. We're going to have persecution from time to time. But in all of those things, any of the things that you can imagine that are powers that are threatening to you, in all of those things, we overwhelmingly conquer because of our own power, because of somehow we've studied doctrine for a number of years and we've, we've given ourselves all this power inside ourselves? No. How? Through him who loved us. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Love. For I am convinced, now let's get another list, that neither death nor life, those are two powers. In fact, those are, if you think about it, the, the, between those two, there's this whole level of power of life and death, which Jesus just told us he has the power over, by the way. Nor angels, nor principalities. Gee, can an angel or a principality ever tempt me enough so that I may, be, I may feel like I've committed a sin that's so bad? No, because they don't have as much power as the love of God. Neither angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come. By the way, anything you could do that you think could mess this all up is either something you're doing right now or something you're going to do in the future. None of that can ever come between you and the love of God. Nor powers, any of them. Why? Because Jesus Christ and his Father are the most powerful power in the universe. Nor the height nor depth. Like David said in one of the Psalms, if I, if I, if I put myself in hell, he's there for me. Right? Neither height nor depth, nor any other created thing. That eliminates everything except God. Do you see that? There's God and there's every created thing. That's it. So he wraps this all up. If you haven't, if you if I haven't touched something that touches your heart yet, let me just tell you: no created thing, your flesh, another person, angels, principalities, none of that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The life that Jesus shares with his sheep is eternal. It will never end. And it is totally 100% secure. And by the way, it's not a matter of the sheep ever holding on to the shepherd. It's only a matter of the shepherd's power to hold on to us. And again, the sheep are doubly secure. Doubly, we're more than that. But in this passage, we're doubly secure. Because to be in the hands of Jesus is to be in the hands of God the Father. Because I and the Father are one, Jesus says. All right, let's close with one more statement, one more example of the power of God that is holding us in a salvation that we can never lose. I think my voice may even project into the into the back today, I think. I'm thinking it might be doing that. I know it's, it sounds like there's a little disturbance back there, but... You know, power of God speaking. First Peter chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He did it. We didn't do it. He did it. To a living hope. That's that security. That's that comfort. That's that assurance. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's Resurrection Sunday. Right? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. By the way, that was the greatest display of the power of God, you know. When, so far, when he raised his son Jesus from the dead. Power. Now, we have been, we have been caused to be born again. We have a living hope. That hope is pictured and centered in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. His life is our life to obtain an inheritance. All right. An inheritance is something in the future that is totally secure. Notice what it is. It's imperishable. It's undefiled and it will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. It's got your name on it. Okay. And it's an inheritance which will never go away. It's not defiled. It's tied into the very resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 5. You who are protected, how? By the power of God. The power of God is working right now in your life. It always will. And it is secured. You are protected 
through faith, which is another gift, by the way, God's channel, all right, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Power of God is what we rely on, and that is the greatest power in the universe. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the truths of your word. Father, we thank you with the simplic- about the simplicity with which our Lord and Savior lays things on the line. We thank you also, Father, about the power of your word that's living and active and penetrates the hearts and souls of men. We thank you, Father, for the message of the gospel, the good news that your son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died for our sins and everybody's sins, was buried. And on the third day, Father, you raised him from the dead so that whoever simply believes in Jesus Christ as their savior will never perish and has eternal life. And that's a life that can never end and that nobody, no power in the universe can ever take from you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. You guys have a great day. We, by the way, we are having uh, Bible study Thursday evening. You may be wondering about that. We're going to have it. All right. You can come here, 630. You can go on Skype as it normally does. So.